Listen to the reading of God's holy word from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16 through chapter 9, verse 6. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. That's the reading of God's holy word. Now, the teacher set out from the very beginning of this book to ascertain the purpose of life. And uh, anyone who sets out on such a journey is looking uh, for an answer, hoping to find an answer. They aren't uh, looking or hoping for more possibilities for answers. They're hoping for a final answer. And what the teacher has revealed throughout his journey, as recorded for us in the book of Ecclesiastes, is it's complicated. <clears throat> Samuel uh, Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, published in 1755, was the work of one man spanning seven years. It was the definitive dictionary of the English language until the Oxford English Dictionary was published 173 years later. And when Johnson's dictionary was completed, he wrote the following in the preface to the dictionary. Quote, I saw that one inquiry only gave occasion to another, that book referred to book, that to search was not always to find, and to find was not always to be informed, and that thus to pursue perfection was to chase the sun. Uh, such is the conclusion of the teacher as he begins the conclusion of his book. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. 
Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the teacher concludes that living in a broken world, we find ourselves uh, living in a way that means living with one unexplained thing after another. The seeming unresolvable follows the unresolvable. And in the process, what do we learn? We learn, as he has told us again and again, to rely on God uh, and to trust God to know the end from the beginning. Why? Because you won't. We won't. So discipleship, our walk with God, is not defined by an outcome. It is a process. So he has learned the weary truth of human longing and the Hevel quality of life's pursuits. Remember that word, Hevel. All is Hevel. It's like smoke. Try to grasp it, it escapes your grasp. So the Havel quality of life characterizes all of human longing and pursuit. If someone claims, and many seem to, if someone claims to know the secret, they are lying. That's one of the great resources the book of Ecclesiastes provides us. It's easy to spot the liars among us. Wisdom, he's telling us and has told us, is worthy to possess, but it too has limitations. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. In other words, the teacher is telling us here to fail to grasp what he's telling us will lead to what? More and more sleepless nights. And so as a result, in verse 17, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, human knowledge is limited. Human knowledge is limited. <clears throat> by uh, 2020, that was last year, I think, by 2020, uh, we were told that the amount of digital data produced will exceed 40 zettabytes, which is the equivalent of 5,200 gigabytes of data for every man, woman, and child on Earth. That's according to the definitive updated Digital Universe study released in 2020. To put that in perspective, 40 zettabytes is 40 trillion gigabytes, estimated to be 57 times the amount of all the grains of sand on all the beaches on the earth. 
they still can't explain the mysteries of the sovereign God in this universe. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's a famous quote about life which expresses, in this case, Macbeth's nihilism, a sense of the meaninglessness of life. Macbeth says that after hearing that his wife has died, in the moments right before his climactic battle with Macduff, and in that tumultuous moment, Macbeth is feeling that life is absurd and that nothing has any purpose or meaning. Everything he did to become king will soon be erased by his story coming to an end. Thus, the question, what is life? Macbeth answers, it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So the teacher does not succumb to Macbeth's attempting conclusion. Uh, rather, he concludes that all he sees, verse 17, is the work of God. The work of God. It is, in fact, the work of God, rather than fall into Macbeth's despair, rather than limit God to what the mind can conjure for itself. Uh, Romans 11, 33 and 34, Paul writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? So, in the words of Isaac Watts, immortal, we give immortal praise. Where reason fails with all her powers, there faith prevails and love adores. So, the teacher then proceeds uh, to his next conclusion. Regarding, regarding surrendering uh, to God's sovereignty and exploring uh, its uh, limitations. Chapter 9, verse 1, But all this I, I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the whole world, that's right, he's got the whole world in his hands. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so the whole world and all that's in it is in his hands. On the one hand, this means what? This means that our uh, trust in God is deserved. Okay. Uh, he is then, after all, in control of all things, the hand of God designates what? The power to do whatever he wills to do. Uh, for the believer, this is meant to be comforting, and it is. We know, after all, that the hand of God is the hand of love. And so we know this because we know that the hands of Jesus were pierced for our transgressions while he was nailed to a tree. So when we say he has the whole world in his hands, our minds are drawn directly to Calvary. Uh, 
into the pierced hands of Christ, who is, after all, the author and sustainer of our faith, the beginning and end of all things, the one by whom, through whom, and for whom, and all things were made. I mean, this is the hands of God right there. So, uh, <clears throat> this gives us hope, hopefully. This gives us faith to leave everything in those hands, God's hands, Every burden, every trial, even our tears, our cares are all placed into his loving hands so that we might endure. The Savior who loves us, we know from this, the one who died for us is the one who also promises to take care of us throughout eternity. And how do we know that? Because we live looking back at the cross. The cross isn't ahead of us somewhere, it's behind us. And because of that, we can live out of the knowledge of these things having been accomplished, not simply promised, but accomplished. But even then, life is still a continual struggle. So on the other hand, this life can be, in all of its troubles and the lack of understanding and wisdom that we in inevitably possess, uh, it can be a disconcerting experience in life as well. Why? Because it means we are incapable of controlling things as we desire. We are incapable of controlling things as we desire. Uh, as he says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Uh, this uh, fuels my own innate suspicious character. So, does he really mean what he's saying? Or does he mean something else he's saying? Maybe he, yeah, love or hate. Both are before him. But whether it's one or the other, he says we don't know. Now, that probably means that one cannot discern God's love or hatred from the outward circumstances of your life. Now, we hate that, don't we? Because we want to be able to know. Things going well, God loves me. Things going bad, God hates me. I mean, we want to know. But we're told here we cannot know whether good or bad. We can't know. And that is, as we've seen, one of the minor themes of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Since we've been told this again and again, the same fate awaits the fool as awaits the wise man. How can you divine God's favor from what you experience in this life? Uh, doesn't everyone die? Yes. One cannot discern or know from one's experience whether health or sickness, wealth or poverty, life or death is solid evidence of God's love or displeasure. We all wish we were like those people who could find water. You know, those divining rods or whatever, and they walk around the field and they there it is, love, or displeasure. Don't we wish, however, such a wish would not be good? And that's what he's telling us. 
It would be based on a false premise. So, experience will not tell you. Experience will not tell you whether you are experiencing his favor or something else. And if you think it will, your life is going to be a roller coaster, of course. So, since experience can't decide for us, because God's ways with us are inscrutable in many ways, God's freedom is unbounded in this life. His freedom is unbounded in this life. Ours isn't, his is unbounded in this life. And we cannot tell by God's treatment of particular individuals whether they are objects of his love or objects of his wrath. We can't tell because some good people experience what might appear to be wrath. And we're thinking, wait a minute, does God not like them? We can't determine that based on what we can see. Give it up. You can't. So the teacher is, I love the thing I love, one of the things I love about this book is that the teacher uh, always follows his own advice. (laughs) He actually does what he's telling you he's discovered. And I like that. Most of us don't do the very things we say we've discovered. Uh, He's following his own argument. Remember he warned in chapter 6 that a prosperity isn't always a good thing. That really is contrary to modern opinion. Uh, And in chapter 7, he uh, told us that adversity and affliction are not always evil. Hmm. So, elsewhere in the scriptures, Proverbs 15, for example, verse 17, we're taught that better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. So maybe a vegan diet would be okay as long as there's lots of love, right? And that steak dinner at Outback may be the biggest curse you'll ever know. Anyway, eating poorly, in other words, can be uh, preferable to eating somebody's fill because there are other factors to consider. So the steak dinner with a lot of bitterness and rancor, great food, bad deal. Eating, you know, grass and strawberries where there's lots of love, good deal. All right. Although strawberries are forbidden on a vegan diet, so I shouldn't have used that illustration. Anyway, <clears throat> so we have to then again remember Job's friends. Job's friends. Don't you love Job's friends? Because we would have probably been among his friends. Uh, They looked at the facts and they concluded that Job was being punished. Well, you probably would have thought, I wonder, did he do something really bad? Look at all this stuff. They concluded that God's favor had been removed from Job because he had concealed some evil behavior. What'd you do? Uh, But suffering, as the book of Job teaches us, proves nothing. It proves nothing, in fact. Suffering can be for any number of reasons. I'll enumerate a few reasons for a suffering. At least the scripture tells us this. Suffering can be um, educational. 
You probably tell your children that every day. It's educational, or it could be for chastisement. Hebrews 12. Uh, suffering can be doxological. In other words, it produces praise to God. John 9. Suffering can be uh, probationary. In other words, it can be a way of testing obedience. The book of Habakkuk, for example. Suffering can be uh, revelational. That is, suffering is a means that God uses to reveal more of himself to you and to me. That seems to be what the book of Hosea is about, for the most part. Suffering can be a sacrificial, a sacrificial form of suffering. Jesus, Paul, etc. Suffering can be punishment, punishment, Revelation chapter 2. Verses 21 to 23. Or for some reason, suffering can be entirely inscrutable. Job chapter 1 and 2. As the teacher says in chapter 9, verses 2 and following, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. So, while the teacher here claims that there's no figuring out God's uh, attitude, and uh, waxes poetic, to say the least, about how everyone meets the same fate, chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he's clear that there uh, is a universal reason for this universal situation. There's a universal reason for the universal situation that he is so aptly described for us. And that is all men and women, no matter their age, no matter their station in life, no matter their abilities, all are evil. There's a universal reason for the universal situation he has described for us. All the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. He doesn't leave any caveats for us there. Except that brand new baby. Not evil. Couldn't possibly be evil. No, no. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. Get that. Madness. <laughs> Craziness. Yeah. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Never skips a day. <laughs> Old time. And it even follows them to the grave. Notice what he says. And after they go to the dead, man. So, this isn't anything new. He's been telling us this over and over. And most recently in chapter 7, verse 20. If they're heavy storms, 
The righteous get flooded just like the wicked. If there's an earthquake, both their houses fall down. If there's a depression, I'm thinking financially here. If there's a depression, everybody goes broke. <clears throat> Your 401k is not immune to the drop in the stock market, even though you're a God-fearing person. doesn't matter. But then on the optimistic side, when things are good, a rising tide lifts all boats. The evil and the good too. His stock goes up just like your stock goes up. His house increases in value just like your house increases in value. So a rising tide lifts all boats, the good, the bad, and all the others in between. So, there will, so in other words, we're never going to be able to separate the righteous from the wicked on the basis of what happens in the world. In terms of circumstances, that will never be the guide for distinguishing between the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. Why? Well, Jesus even said in Matthew 5, you remember, he causes the sun to rise, to shine, on the evil and the just. They benefit from that glorious sunshine just like you do. If it rains, their crops grow just like your crops will grow. So it's impossible to determine who has or doesn't have favor from God. So in the end, he says, and after that, they go to the dead. Death is, as you've seen throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, is the elephant in every family's living room. Death is the elephant in everyone's living room. It's that elephant you try to ignore, you don't want to talk about, but it's there all the time. And that's not something that damages your spiritual life. According to the teacher, it gives meaning to your spiritual life. It gives depth to your spiritual life. It puts limitations on your grand delusions of life. Changing your husband, your wife, your kids, your world. Oh, if we only had a president like this. If we only had a congress like this. If we only had a king like this. Give it up. Remember the elephant in the living room. Death is the great leveler. I saw a bumper sticker once, I think, that summed it up well. It said, quote, eat well, stay fit, and die anyway. <laughs> Join Planet Fitness. Make that a massive part of your budget and die anyway. Oh, you'll be a lot healthier when you die. But you're going to die anyway. I love that guy who was famous marathon runner. This happened 30 years ago. That's how old I am now. But anyway, famous marathon runner, always promoting running and all this other kind of stuff, died of a cardiac arrest. He weighed about 98 pounds, never smoked a cigarette in his life, never ate anything bad, and dropped dead on a running course. Run the marathon and die anyway. That's what he's telling us. 
And that's supposed to change your life. And it should change your life. And if it doesn't change your life, you're living in deep denial. It changes everything. One of my favorite novels, really, was a novella by an English authoress. Is that okay to say now? Uh, named Muriel Spark. And the name of the novella was Memento Mori. Memento Mori. Anyway, Memento Mori just translates into remember, you must die. Remember, you must die. And in the novel, the central characters... <clears throat> All of whom are elderly, hello, all of whom are elderly receive mysterious phone calls which always conclude with, as Joe Biden would say, memento mori. Memento mori. So every time I call you, you call me, or you call anyone in the church, you should end every conversation with, Memento mori. You think I'm kidding. I'm not. The book of Ecclesiastes is saying that's what you really should do. Remember, you must die. If that church would only be this way, don't you agree? Memento mori. Remember, you must die. Give up your schemes and dreams and imaginings. Live in the world God's made. And it's a broken world. Remember, you must die. And in light of that unyielding reality, verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> Believe me, I'm the dog, not the lion here. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more, no more reward, <laughs> for the memory of them is forgotten. That's one of my favorite passages. <laughs> the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So, simply put, he's saying here, living is better than dying. Living is better than dying. That's why I keep saying, enjoy it. Eat, drink, be merry. God's gift to you. Enjoy every day, every hour, every minute. Living's a lot better than just dying. But oh, by the way, memento mori, you must die. So the teacher here mentions some of the problems associated with death. Death, he tells us, brings ignorance. <laughs> yeah, death brings ignorance, as he puts it, the dead know nothing. The dead know nothing. Well, at least they don't know what's happening on earth, okay? The end of verse 6 makes it clear that the teacher isn't denying an afterlife. No, he's not saying that. But he's really describing this permanent end to what death in this world under the sun brings. It, in other words, he's talking about our earthly existence here. He's not talking about our heavenly existence. He's talking about our earthly existence. 
And that's why the under the sun umbrella is so important for understanding the life we are given in this world, which is a world where death occurs. And that's how we have to reconfigure our thinking. Because there's, it, there's power in doing it. There's power in it. So as soon as we die, he tells, in, tells us in verse 6, we forfeit our share in all that is done under the sun. So <clears throat> that's pretty important to know. Death also brings irreparable loss. Irreparable loss. For the dead don't gain any earthly reward uh, <clears throat> or even a heavenly reward if they die outside Christ. Nothing. Uh, death also, he's telling us, brings oblivion. Uh, no one remembers the dead when they're gone. As hard as you try. As hard as you hope your children will try, <laughs> as hard as you hope your grandchildren will try, eventually the pictures will fade. Uh, I don't see anybody out there visiting those Confederate tombstones. <laughs> Whatever happened to their relatives? <laughs> They're buried there. I assume they probably all around here somewhere. No, 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 no. Even the earthly emotions that, for the most part, make us feel alive. Feelings like love and hatred and envy that he mentions in verse 6. All of those things will disappear when we die. So when we consider all of the things that we lose through death, physical death, the people whom we love, we lose them. All the little joys of life that we hopefully had on this planet uh, when we consider all the things like that that we lose it ought to make us what it ought to make you grateful appreciative thankful that you're still alive and you're still breathing but we get up and curse the world we get up and watch the news and go if that, I just hate that guy blur, I just, blur, blur. so all of that's going to be gone none of it gives you power control over anything and you still can't appreciate that you're alive knowing that you still have difficulty appreciating you're alive don't you find that remarkable yeah, yeah. You're alive and you're breathing. So however difficult life may be, it's better than that. It's better than that alternative. I mean, look, I believe when you die, you go to Jesus, all right? To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But I can't tell you a whole lot about what that's going to be. I know a lot about the new heavens and the new earth, and I know a lot about what that's going to be, because the Bible tells it to me in great detail. But between now and then, I don't know. Do you? If you do, you ought to write a book about it. The intermediate state is a mystery. We don't know. We just don't know. I'm not going to, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> Why? I don't know anything about it. I know what the ultimate end will be, but I don't know what the in-between thing is going to be. 
I'm not going to be punished. I'm not going to be treated badly. And no one like that. But the Bible is telling us what is now and how you're meant to live now. And oh, by the way, when you do die, one day we're going to have a great meal together with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. And we'll spend an eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And you're going to paint and I'm going to play and I'm going to talk. Well, hopefully not talk. I'm going to do other things. And it'll be wonderful for eternity. It'll be great. Nobody dies. Nobody gets sick. Nobody cries. Nobody nothing. But that's way off. If history is any evidence, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth. So... Knowing all of this is so important. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. That may seem like a a small comfort, but think again. Think again. You see, (laughs) this is so hard to believe because we're so conditioned not to believe it. But the main advantage of living is knowing you will die. The main advantage of living is knowing that you will die. Suck on that hard candy for a few hours. The main advantage of living is knowing you will die. Why? Well, knowing in this sense gives us the impetus to consider death and what effect it's meant to have on us now, right now, while we're still here, while we're still alive. You see, when life is qualified as life under the sun, we're driven to do what? We're driven to consider another life beyond the sun. Right? This is life under the sun. What's life not under the sun going to be? That's what it drives you to. It's meant to. You see, when you get to chapter 12, we discover that there's also a life above the sun where in chapter 12 verse 7 he says the spirit returns to God who gave it the spirit returns to God who gave it and a life to come he tells us in chapter 12 where God will bring every deed into judgment chapter 12 verse 14 so the just God's going to set everything right everything right And our spirits will return to God forever. You remember, Ecclesiastes does not tell us all the answers. It would violate its own code if it attempted to do so. Right? The limitations of wisdom. Because the book of Ecclesiastes is written to tell us how to live when we don't have all the answers. How do we live when we don't have all the answers? 
Because the rest of the story, for the rest of the story and for the ultimate answer to life and death, we need the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible. Remember we started out saying the book of Ecclesiastes, this is Peter Kreef's observation, but the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes asks the questions the rest of the Bible is designed to answer for us in one way or another. Not necessarily exhaustively, but enough to give us hope. So what does the rest of the Bible teach us about the life to come? Well, it teaches us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has gone ahead of us into glory. He is our forerunner. He's tasted death once for all. That's you and me. He's gone into glory ahead of us to show us the way and what that ultimately concludes in. So what did he do? The first thing he did was he gave us life by giving his life for our sins and going to a cross. That's the first thing he did. And then what did he do? Well, he was buried in the ground, just like you most likely will be, unless you die at sea. Uh, you're going to most likely be put in the ground too. Uh, so he was buried in the ground, and he was dead as dead could be. But on the third day, he rose. He rose to immortality. He brought with him eternal life out of the grave. That's what he brought with him. And so the promise of God for every believer in Christ is what? You too shall live. You too shall live. And so that means what? That our, our lives will not end in mindless oblivion. Praise God. We will not suffer endless loss as the lost will. On the contrary, death will be our passage to glory. Our passage to glory. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Doesn't say that about any other people. Verse Peter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Wow. That's plenty. I'll take that. And all of this is only the beginning. Isn't that wonderful? What he just said is really only the beginning of things. Why can I say it's only the beginning? Because Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, No eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of a man, a man imagined. Get that. You think you're an imaginative person? Well, you're not that imaginative. You haven't, you're not able to imagine what it will be. Imagine it. You can't. It's so unimaginable, humanly speaking. What God has prepared for those who love him. Wow. Now that's hope. That's a promise. The only question that has to be answered is, will you die as a Christian? <laughs> You're going to die. Memento mori. 
But will you die as one in Christ or one in Adam? That's the most important question anyone can ask and anyone can find an answer for. You see, if we're wise, if you're a wise person, get ready to die right now. You see, a believer in Christ is ready to die right now. Are you ready to die right now? I don't mean in a couple of years after the grandkids have gotten bigger. After 20 more Christmases. At least one more new car purchase. Whatever. You see, a Christian's ready to die right now. So if you're wise, you'll be ready to die right now. How do you do that? By asking Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and trusting Him to raise your dead body into eternal life. To glory unimaginable. That's how you do it. That's how you get ready to die right now. And then you can come to the last of your days, whatever that day may be, and be ready to die with full confidence in Christ. Not in you, but in Christ. Do that. And memento mori, remember, you must die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. We thank you that the good news has a bad side and a good side. The bad side is you're worse than you ever thought you could be. Your heart is darker than you ever imagined it to be. But the good, not, good news is that if you know Jesus, you'll be more loved than you could ever have hoped to be. And the promises are all yours in Christ. <clears throat> he is, after all, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. If you're linked to Christ, you're linked to eternity with Him. Where He goes, you go. He's been through this horrible, evil world. He went to a cross and died for my sin. He went to a grave, dead as dead can be. He came out of that grave and he carried eternal life with him all the way to the throne room of God where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, always pleading our case, knowing that we are part of his forgiven assembly, his children forever and ever I am. So we ask that you would remind us of this daily, that this is the reality of the world you have made, that we have polluted with our sin because of Adam and his sin all must die. But because of the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, we now may live. For to know Christ is to know life eternal. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.